You're listening to the Clon Bikecast, your one-stop shop for all things Clonakilty Bicycle Festival and beyond. Today, an interview with Elio Byrne, freelance journalist based in Cork City and media lecturer in Griffith College. We met to speak about an article Ellie was writing about some cycle routes we're trying to get here in Clonakilty out to our beaches. Her work is most frequently seen in the Irish Examiner, where she covers arts and culture and environmental features, and also in the Echo, where her work is in community and environment. Before journalism, Ellie co-founded the Natural Food Bakery in Cork City with her sister, as well as Black Rock Village Farmers Market. At 23, she was one of 12 named appellants in a court case against the state, trying to appeal planning permission for an incinerator to be built in Cork Harbour. She's a lifelong cyclist who did all her children's primary school commuting by bike, as well as a lover of international slow adventuring. She's crossed 17 land borders on her current bicycle, taking in countries including Croatia, Albania, Portugal, and Italy. We didn't speak that much about cycling in this interview, but I really wanted to pick Ellie's brains about how we could use freedom of information and access of information on the environment to further our work in building better infrastructure and safer streets for cycling. sitting here today in the Clon Bikecast headquarters with Ellie O'Byrne, a journalist, an Irish journalist, who's come to talk to me about, um, we're going to talk about things like the freedom of information and ways that small community groups might work with the media to kind of um, get the changes that we need in our communities. So thank you so much, Ellie, for being here today with me. And it's you're actually the first person I've talked to in person. We've got a desk between us, there's a bit of social distance, but it's lovely to see a person not on a screen um, Thanks very much for having me, Alison. It's really nice to be here, socially distanced, of course. <laughs> um, I was just wondering, maybe before we get into the nuts and bolts, um, you could tell me a bit about journalism, how long you've been a journalist, um, and maybe what you do, how you, how you, how you work. Okay, well, I suppose um, there's a big difference there between freelance and staff journalists. So I actually set up a bakery and ran a, an artisan bakery in Cork City for uh, nearly a decade. And then I just needed out of staff management and those types of aspects of the business that I found frustrating. So I went back and I did a BA in journalism. And by my third year of doing that, I guess because I was highly motivated by um, having children and needing to put food on the table, um, I was in print as a freelancer. And then I did some desk work and then I just realised that freelance suited me better so basically what happens is I accumulate different types of stories I write a lot of features which would be longer not news based so you know the front of your paper would be your kind of news stories and they might be 300 words and it's very hard to make a living out of them so I write a lot more features long interviews I write a lot of arts and culture for the Irish Examiner but then I write all sorts of human interest and I have a very strong interest in um, environmental concerns. And, and food. And food. That's where yeah. the food comes from. That makes sense yeah. now. And um, so how would you then have kind of regular gigs where you're going back and writing kind of you have a column that you do? Uh, when I'm very lucky, I get series. I'm not yeah. a columnist, so that yeah. would be more opinion writing. Yeah. Uh, I tend to steer clear of that because I guess I come from the idea that um, we... To run a proper democracy, you need access to real information. So I suppose I'm kind of motivated by wanting to share real information with people rather than mouth off on my own opinions so much. So um, I don't have columns, but I do write series. So I've written um, series for The Examiner and for The Echo as well. Um, And so most of what I'm actually doing is 
pitching myself to my editors. So I'd have like a selection of different newspaper editors that I work with. And then what I do is I'm sending them emails pretty much every day saying this thing has happened or this person is interesting. Would you like a piece? So I'm selling on those stories. That's how freelancing works. If you work as a staff reporter, you probably have your own what they call your beat, which would be the area that you're interested in covering. But then you'll also be asked to turn around lots and lots of smaller stories on a day-to-day basis because obviously newspaper circulation has dropped off advertising revenue is really really small so staff reporters are generally very desk-based and they just have to churn what we call journalism they have to turn over huge numbers of stories every day yeah I didn't really want to do that work I want to do work that I kind of ethically am in line with myself yeah so how do you choose a story is it mostly people come to you or do you hear something yeah, I mean, there's a com- there's a variety of different ways, but I really rely really heavily on communities of people and people that I might have encountered in the past. So like if I cover one person's story, then if you build up a relationship of trust with that person, then you become the person that they go to when they have another story that they think is interesting. So I generally know about four times the amount of information that I ever get out there at any one time. I normally have a couple of freedom information of information requests on the go with various different bodies. And there's some stuff that just never gets to see the light of day as well. So it's interesting just to hear that. So community groups, that's what I'm interested in talking about too, is like how a community group who's really trying hard to get a positive change in their community and they're frustrated either because of something happening um, with the council or something structurally that's happening that they just can't seem to get the message out there, um, how they could get on to a journalist and how you could find a journalist that might want to hear your story. What's the best way to find somebody um, who might be willing to, to help you? Yeah. Get the, get the word out that you're struggling. Okay. I mean, I suppose the the first thing, I mean, we're, we're crossing over here into the kind of world of, of PR to an extent and knowing how to make those kinds of approaches. And obviously that's a huge field of studies and people take like really, you know, like three year degrees. Can you give it to me in 10 seconds? Can you give it to me in a soundbite? It's really easy. Basically journalists have a really short concentration span. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. That's a good tip. And editors are working under massive pressure. So like, Generally, I don't know how this works for all publications and say there's like obviously online first now as well, which is a very different news cycle, pardon the pun. But um, so but generally the traditional news, the way a traditional newspaper works is that all the editors will meet in the morning. They'll decide, roughly speaking, what's going in that day and then their pressure will build throughout the day as they try and fill the pages up get all the work in and then there'll be like advertising changes right at the end of the day and then they want to like put the paper to bed like make sure they have the entire thing nailed down the design of each page and then it goes off to print and it goes off during the night and it's there being trucked around the country in the morning which is sometimes why you never really know you hear it might go out but you're not sure it's going to fit into that one because if anything breaks in in that day yeah and i think that's something that where community groups i think there can be this um, kind of sense of hurt if their story doesn't get covered sometimes but then like if the Pope has died you have to understand that the front page is going to that yeah so there's these things this is a googleable phenomenon I and I teach this to my students there's this thing called news values which is which is a field of media studies which is what puts something into the paper 
and and news values began to be studied in the 1960s actually in Norwegian publications and but and now has slightly changed because of digital so things like um, can you provide um, video footage if you have a great story can you put send in a video clip because video clips are very monetizable for newspapers so they like to embed video so that's a kind of a news value of today but basically what news values are is like a collection of of um, things that would be guaranteed so like you know um, novelty factor what's called man bites dog so it's yeah. like you know dog bites man it's not news man bites dog it is news um, uh, things like uh, locality really really important um, your local press is really your best friend because yep. most local press are going to take any story that's about their locality uh, but also other things like um, uh, uh, currency is a really really interesting one that the timeliness of the story and linking it into other stories and also what's called magnitude which is numbers so know how much something should have cost. Know the numbers. Edit, newspaper editors go crazy for numbers. They love them. If you can say 5,000 people will be impacted by yeah. this, that's a far stronger story than just like, you know, there will we be think a... that there will be some impact from okay. this, you know? So know your numbers is a really, really good one. Short, sweet, with some good yeah. facts. Yeah. So then you can make an approach to freelancers like me. I'm always open for ideas. And, and most freelancers are very grateful to hear from people. Uh, and then, but then you can also obviously, I mean, you, the internet is just your best friend. You just go on the uh, the page of the publication that you're interested to. Most of them will have a, a, a news at um, email address. Or if you can, you can figure out the format of of the journalist, the staff journalist's email. You know, it'll be first name dot surname at, or yeah. it'll be you know, in first initial dot surname at or whatever, there's normally a standard format that the staff reporters... You sneak in the back door. And, and then you can make approaches to individual journalists, journalists that you which is kind of to, yeah. stronger because generally the news at email addresses are um, accessible from a lot of different people and, and things slip through the net quite quickly there. Yeah. Um, whereas, obviously, if you can Google and look at the track record of a particular journalist and see if that's what they cover then you're on to a far better thing. I mean, if you, you know, if you send an email to somebody and then you realise that they're actually a food reviewer or something, then they're not really going to be able to help you. So it's all about research. Really. So you mentioned there to your teaching. So you're teaching, you said, what was it MA students at Griffith College? Mm, yeah, I used to teach on the MA in, in journalism in Griffith College in Dublin and the BA in journalism in Griffith College in Cork. So does that mean you're going back and forth around the country quite a bit? What I do is I put my bike on the train. Do you? Yeah. Oh. So I get I can work on the train when I go when I teach in Dublin and I just. Do it's you have really a full handy. size bike or is it folding? Yeah, yeah. I normally I don't find because not enough people know that that's the most convenient way to get between Cork and Dublin. Um, I normally find that there's empty space for my bike in the carriage. Yeah, when I travel by bike to Dublin, people are always surprised. Yeah. Wow, how did you, did you cycle from Cork? No, no, you can <laughs> put it on the train. <laughs> yeah. I'm not that hardcore, yeah. but I, I'm actually always come at it from a perspective of absolute laziness. Because when you get off the train in Dublin, the public transit, you know, it's not spread out enough around Dublin anyway. But once you get off the platform in Dublin, you're just there, wherever you want to be in 10 minutes in Dublin. It's amazing. Yeah. So I just think bikes are, it's not like a something that's a, a radical 
crazy thing to do but something that just makes life like I, I always come at it it's the same with parenting for us a lot of our choices are based on laziness not not based on anything else what's easiest bikes make it easy oh great that's good to know you're taking your bike up to dublin um so bikes yeah that's what we are doing this the clown bike cast is right now is the series um we're in the midst of looking at how to work with your local authority on getting the changes you need to make safer quieter streets for pedestrians and cyclists and um, kind of focusing on west cork so i wonder um when to dig a bit deeper with you and you could maybe explain to me what is the freedom of information and access to the information on the environment what are those and what how can they help basically if we're trying to find information (coughs) sorry totally normal cough editable cough (laughs) yeah so um uh freedom of um Freedom of access to information, or FOI as it's known, is is uh, basically came in in Ireland in 1997, and it's a kind of a move to build transparency into our systems, whereby um, normal people can access what records uh, different public entities hold. Right, so. I mean, I suppose that becomes personal. There's a personal class of information. So that would say that, for example, you have the right to access all of your own health records and all of the own decisions relating to your own health. But that's a personal class of information. And then there's the other class of information, which really is more to do with kind of, um, you know, civics and our sense of ownership, the fact that our taxes go to these decisions, you know. So I think really that's where... FOI stands as this kind of like attempt at, very flawed by the way, but attempt at transparency that would enable you to dig in and find out who has decided what. Um, And uh, it's designed so that um, all public entities, so you can find out a list of every everything, but basically that would be all local authorities, the HSE, publicly funded colleges, all of these organisations um, have a system in place where they have to have a freedom of information officer. That can be a dedicated role if the public body is big enough, but it might also be a shared role if the public body isn't big enough that they're turning over a lot of those requests. And then they are legally required to respond to you when you use certain wording. It's a bit like magic. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you when you say, I'm requesting this information under the FOI Act of 2014, they are legally re- uh, required to respond to your request. This is the magic. This is like you said, this is the magic stuff I'm trying to pull out of yeah. people because I know there's a lot of these little keys yeah. that you can turn to be heard and that you need they have they're they're legally required to respond and that's really important yeah so alongside so we'll talk about wording um maybe in a minute as well and i'm going to just direct you to some resources you might want to share some links with your listeners uh but alongside foi and this is something that for for a cycling advocacy in particular might be more interesting and more useful is another set of legislation that's underused as far as I'm concerned uh, called AIE which is access to information on the environment which is European legislation so in some ways that's kind of stronger legislation Um, and the interesting thing about it is that it's based on this very uh, wonderfully idealistic idea that I believe derives from the Aarhus Convention if I'm not wrong which would be that we all have the right to access information on our environment. And that's not limited by where you are. 
So like I have the right to access information on the environment, on something that's happening in Dublin, because it's still my environment. So it's really quite a nice philosophy underlining it. Um, and also there are a couple of ways in which AIE is stronger legislation than FOI legislation. Um, so I suppose uh, when it comes to wording and the, ver and the real specifics of, of how to put in these requests, they're both very similar, FOI and AIE. Um, and sorry, I'm just going to turn a page here because I have a couple of notes. Um, so basically what you have to do is you have to find the, the correct email address for the FOI or AIE officer for an organisation. So, I mean, like people should just try Googling. So, for example, their local authority, just go to the local authority page and you should see somewhere FOI, a tab saying FOI. And then that should give you the email address that you need to contact. Uh, once you've done that, you just need to um, you need to know what you're looking for. I think the unsuccessful freedom of information requests are the ones where the person asks a question. A vague. Yeah. yeah. So you can't say, why didn't you decide to do this? Yeah. That's the, basically the FOI officer has access to records, a huge number of records, and their job is to pull out those records and decide whether or not to give them to you. Yeah. So they can't answer questions. So they're not Google, you know? Yeah. So what, so what you do is you, you know, I mean, really good FOIs are going on a hunch. So there's a really, really good example of that, which is actually very slightly off topic. But Leo Varadkar and Kylie Minogue, do you know that story? <laughs> OK, so uh, Leo Varadkar got a selfie taken with Kylie Minogue and a bunch of his buddies. A journalist from one of the tabloids um, just um, had a hunch and he sent an FOI request to see the correspondence from the Taoiseach's office. He sent it to who? So he, who would he have sent that to? To the Taoiseach's office. To the Taoiseach's yeah. office. You go to Taoiseach'sOffice.com, Within FOI. a certain date and with Kylie Minogue in the search terms to see if any officially headed information had gone out from the Taoiseach's office to approach Kylie Minogue in advance of her Irish gig. Amazing. Right? He was turned down on the first round on the basis of the fact that it was private information uh, he appealed on the basis of the fact that anything that's on the Irish Taoiseach's headed notepaper is not private information. And the, he was found to be correct. And then he got this incredibly cringe-inducing letter from the Taoiseach asking, saying to Kylie Minogue that he's a huge fan and can he go and have a photograph taken with her. So that's, I know that's totally off topic, but it's a really good example in a way of somebody who's going on knowing that there's a specific bit of information that they're looking for. Something had to have happened there for those two stars to have exactly. aligned the way they did. Yeah, exactly. Or equally, how is something that seems so obvious not getting done? Yeah. And I've heard that the EU has money for it. And I heard that, you know, I heard that this is meant to be happening. Show me where the money is or show me is yeah. that kind of the hunch. Like this should have happened. That's I suppose I would be a why question asker all the time. So, yeah, interesting to so, try to you have to try to get a, a something down to basically one email or, or a fact. You have to you're pulling for a fact. Yeah, basically. And so, I mean, obviously, you and you mentioned their email. So um, hunches could come from, for example, seeing that you're copied in. So say you've been in contact with the local authority, but you can see that there's a couple of other names there that have also been copied in on that mail. That might tell you that you're kind of part of a sub thread of emails that's going around in an organization or something like that. So could you request, for instance, 
um, two people in the same organization to see what, that you know have been talking about something maybe that you're interested in. Could you request to see those exchanges between those dates? Yes. If it's underneath, if they're using their email system, which is a state email system. Yes, absolutely. And though, and the and what you mentioned there about dates is also really important because there are many many ways in which you can be refused on 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 very valid grounds. So for example, if you ask for private information belonging to another individual obviously you know there's an exemption you can re- you can actually read the full act if you really want to read the full list of ways in which you can be refused but obviously you know you're not going to gain access to someone else's like medical records or yeah. something like that um uh, and similarly you can be refused on the basis of volume yeah. of the information that your return ha- has created so that's where the wording is really specific so putting in dates so you say between this date and this date means that you're not going to get a call back and somebody isn't going to say to you, look, I have to read a million emails to be able to make this return. Refusal on the grounds of um, refusal on the grounds of uh, too much information is very, very common. So again, that's to do with researching and understanding what it is precisely that you're looking for from them. So basically, you just have to find the email address of the FOI officer for the organization. A lot of um, public organizations will try and con you into thinking that you have to fill out a specific form or that you have to approach them by post only. None of those things are true. As long as you use the magic words, um, then you just use the email address and you send it on to them and they're forced to respond. So actually what I would direct you to for anyone who's interested in this, is we have a very wonderful journalist called Ken Fox, who is the, I would think is the Irish kind of freedom of information expert par excellence. And if you just go to www.kenfox.com, he and that's has... Fox, F-O-X-E. F-O-X-E. Looking across correct. at your notes. Yeah. Um, he has a, an absolutely brilliant FOI guide for dummies there. And he has this wording and it's the wording I teach my students. I make all my students file an, an FOI request while I'm teaching them. That's fantastic. And um, it, it's very simple. So basically you're going to be saying... Under the FOI Act of 2014, I'm requesting X information uh, and then you make the information as precise as you possibly can. You ring fence it with dates wherever you can and then you basically say, I want this in electronic form. And what that does is it means that they can't tell you that it's going to cost too much money. If you ask for it in paper form, they're going to try and, you know, send you boxes of printed out paper and then they're allowed to refuse you on the ground of costs if you reach over 101 euros in printing costs so asking for electronic in electronic format is a way of making sure that they can't refuse you on that those and grounds. for the most part what's so their costs involved are they varying depending on the organization or and, and depending on the format so like um uh, they call them search and retrieval costs now i don't really have i think because again email has been very revolutionary in how um entities communicate with each other so i uh, you know i mean searching an email thread now is a matter of you know entering in the search bar certain names or certain search terms and seeing what comes up so i don't i i don't have i've had one kind of refusal or ask to redefine my search terms on the basis of the fact that it was just too broad and they it was going to take them too long to read the emails 
Um, I think that when it was a question of somebody going up in the attic and riffling through all the filing cabinets, the actual search costs were more. So I don't think search is such a huge part of the costs. But I do think that if you ask for novel formats, (coughs) sorry, another one is, um, you know, you can also access things um, like old... um, um, like microfiche because they, this yeah. goes dates back to 1998 so you can find records right the way back to 1998 so it might be in a really strange format for example or you know and you can also foi um body scans and stuff that might be returned in you know quite unusual formats so generally i don't think if you're asking to see records for between public organizations um and they're electronic i don't think that search and retrieval costs really should come into it if you have your search terms defined. so they could that you could incur costs or or is it there they always incur the costs okay and this is this is interesting and this is very important i suppose for anyone i mean for me a freelancer because i don't have any budget for these things and the paper isn't going to cover them but also for community organizations like the ones you're working with um there are some costs involved in in foi um and and it's one of the reasons i'm recommending aie so essentially for freedom of information requests and access to information on the environment requests your first approach to the organization is free we had terrible we had a terrible foi reform in 2003 that was deliberately punitive it was the same government that was going to go on and topple us and cost us billions, by the way, you know, when you talk about making a saving yeah. through FOI versus it costing money. Uh, so so in 2003, that beef from the Fianna Fáil government was that FOI was costing money to administer because they had to pay people to do the stuff. And then they later went on to, you know, cost us actual billions. Um, so um, under that reform, it was it was a lot of money that you had to pay up front. So I think it could have ended up being 225 euros before you had even seen any document back. So that meant there was a huge drop off in the amount of people just able to use that. But then there was this reform in 2014. And now your first foray is completely free. And how the system works is that you make your approach. You send that email with your beautiful, clever wording in it. And then there are lengths of time that they have that they have to respond. So they have 10 days to respond to you in the first instance to say that they've accepted your requests. And then after that, you'd have to check the very specifics, but I think it's a further 20 days under FOI to make their first return to you. If they refuse you, the first thing you do is you have a right to internal appeal. So that's going to be the superior of the person who made the decision. Uh, so you can question the how how often they're likely to um, overturn the decision of someone within the same organization. My experience is that that really doesn't happen very much. Yeah. Uh, and so when you make the at the appeal stage, when you're asking for that internal review, so you say you get no, and I'm not giving you that information because. I don't know, whatever, they'll give you a reason. If you don't think it's a valid reason and you want someone else in that organisation to review it, then you send an email back to the same person saying, good stuff, I'm asking for a review. And under FOI, there is then a charge. So there's a 30 euro charge for an internal review. That, by the way, is 10 euros for somebody with a medical card. So if you're an organization working, working together, if someone in your group has a medical card, that person can be the person who can who can file a review. 
and then it's and then if that gets turned down then you go to the information commissioner so the information commissioner is the person responsible for all of this stuff in ireland and the office of the information commissioner charges 50 euros for a final appeal and the information commissioner has the ability to take court cases to ensure that entities are actually complying with foi under aie all of that is free so okay. that's one of the reasons why I'm saying use AIE. So AIE, you can use in the exact same ways with the exact same bodies? Yes. But yeah. it's slightly different information you'll be accessing? Well, uh, um, it's very broad. So access to information on the environment means everything to do with emissions, certainly everything to do with things like roads, planning yeah. and uh, cycle routes. Pedestrians, and safety. All of those things would fall even under probably. that. Yeah, I mean, obviously emissions, yeah. um, things relating to air testing and, you know, all of yeah. those types of things as well. But it, I mean, you can use AIE in the most insanely clever ways. Like, so you can basically word the same clever wording and instead of using under the FOI, you're you using use AIE. And they'll direct you. Yeah. Sometimes it's the same person. And they just take off their FOI hat and put on their AIE hat. And the uh, the um, information commissioner also has a dual role there. So he's also the person you approach to make appeals for AIE as well as for FOI. I recommend I recommend AIE wherever possible. Yeah. Um, but also it has further clout because yeah. it can be taken forward to the European courts as yeah. well if you need it to. Um, which obviously is going to be very, very rare cases. Um, and um, it, it can be so broadly used. I know a journalist who found out how many Garda cars were on the road in Ireland, you know, th- through through and through looking for the emissions because he was looking for the emissions through AIE. Yeah. He wouldn't have been permitted that through FOI. Yeah. The Garda have large exemptions and were one of the last organisations to fall under FOI. And they can refuse you, you know, I mean, obviously you can't. So they can refuse you on FOI, but then they can't refuse you on AIE. <laughs> If you can prove that the information that you're looking for is Has just directly related to the environment. Amazing. Yeah, it is very, very interesting. Yeah, yeah these are very important tricks of the trade. Thanks for sharing them with me, Ali. <laughs> yeah, so it's I mean... It's a big I job. Just... It's a very big job. I mean, it's a big job to know all this stuff. But it's, I think, um, one thing... I, like, I've, I've always been passionate about small community organisations and kind of, I guess, grassroots, bottom-up um, change. And I think you need the bottom-up to kind of inspire the top to make the change. And this is why I think journalists and community organisations are like a perfect pair, especially freelance journalists who are um, looking, you know, like you're saying, looking looking to make changes and bring to light things that are happening in communities. Because I one thing that I come up again and again here... Um, in in Clonkilty in West Cork but also in Ireland you know there's just some things that you're bashing your head up against a wall you should be getting straight answers and you're being sent around the houses and it's just like there's a certain point where I think I'm a volunteer you know I'm not getting paid for this you're up against people who are getting paid substantial amounts of money who aren't writing you back to support you in things that are no-brainers that are low-budget solutions to solve problems you know you've got the guard behind you you've got all the paperwork behind you but but then you're just bashing your head up against a brick wall. So I think that's when journalism, that's the journalists have that magic ability to turn heads and get attention. And I think that's an amazing power. And that's, I mean, journalism at its core, isn't it? That's what, what, what you guys do in the world, um, bring to attention things that are unjust and need bringing to light. 
so, in an ideal world in yeah. an ideal world that's that's the world i live in yeah in my, yeah, my little finest. bubble in my bubble in my west yeah. cork bubble but but i mean don't don't forget that you you don't have to ask a journalist to yeah. do that for you i mean i really really well i am asking well that's why i'm asking a journalist to tell me about yeah. <laughs> because i just really very very passionately believe that that tr- anyone tr- public ownership of the public realm Absolutely. and the right and ability to just ask questions i mean the, the, it's our tax that's going into these decisions and we should have a right to access that information and it shouldn't necessarily be only for use for a news story a, a lot of legal people use foi to get documents released as well but i don't think that a lot of community groups are aware enough of how they are able to use this to be able to access records, to be able to go back and and hold people to account. So, uh, like, just for an example, I don't know if anything springs to mind for you, but is there anything that springs to mind where it's like um, maybe like spending at a local level, if you could find out about things like that, where town money has gone to, could it be as specific as that, where, where the budget's gone um, I'm I'm very interested in right now they're kind of making the promise of a million euros a day for pedestrian and cycling infrastructure in Ireland, the new government that's forming. And they're saying that that's on the, that's on the, you know, that's potentially, it's looking like it might go through. So obviously these, one of the things I'm a executive on the cyclist.ie, our national cycling advocacy group. And one of the things we're really concerned about is that that money is spent wisely, you know, that that money is spent in programs to improve you know, high quality infrastructure and really great reforms and not just, you know, not just kind of band-aid solutions that don't really make a difference and the money is spent wisely. So is this kind of a way that you could use FOI to say? Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, there's probably quite a retrospective element to some of that. And that for, you know, I mean, I think like, I think that's something actually that the Cork cycling groups do particularly well is stay on their council meetings you know, like see the stuff when it's in the planning state, see what's yep. coming down the road at you yep. rather than be going like, well, why the hell did they do that? And then trying to find out after the yep. event, you know. So I, I do think that probably it's difficult. It's more because of the time lag of FOI. It's more difficult to catch these things in the moment. It's much better for um, the holding to account that comes at a later stage. Okay, so pro- yeah. probably you know staying on top of the the local authority decisions and the planning at the point in which that all that stuff is being done by just attending making sure you have people who can attend the council meetings and yep. you know all that is also really really important i'd say right yeah. all right i was wondering is there any just to wrap up thanks so much again is there any kind of story i think you've already told us a few stories but is there a story that you could link back to either community advocacy or the environment or bikes um that has to do with a great journalist success it doesn't have to be about foi but anything that anything that made you proud as a journalist that you could share that you've done wow (laughs) have you done anything that makes you proud oh god is there anything i know that you've worked on i mean i know that you um I believe that you worked a bit on um, some things in Clonakilty a few years ago when we were trying to get a, a playground up and running. Um, I think you might have been involved a little bit in that. Um, yeah, and the Skibreen Plastics Factory was an important one for me as well. That was amazing. Um, that was a massive success. And so what I did with that was that I sent in FOIs, actually AIEs, and then I put them, you know, because I, like a lot of, Ken Fox would talk about that as well, 
if you do gain access to that information, that information should necessarily be in the public realm. So he publishes everything that he gets. Yeah. So you can go back through his thing. So I put all of those communications on my own website. So that so that was like you're just talking about being more retrospective, but that was actually in ahead progress, of time because we yeah. didn't have obviously the plastic factory got yeah. shut down. Yeah, it, but I managed to happening. get emails from the IDA and from so that's in the planning the stage. In the planning stage. So you can um, be on top of what they're doing by saying, I want to know the emails that are going back and forth yeah. la- last week or yeah. two days ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I was quite proud of that. I mean, I don't know if it had any impact on the on the case or anything, but I did release that the information that I got. And it I has been closed. And, I mean, it's, and it's been successful and there that plastics factory is not going to be built. Now, yeah. You know, and, and I think it's a I know it's not cycling related, but I think that was. A, a really fantastic environmental uh, example of West Cork at its absolute finest. Yeah. Like so much expertise, so much intelligence. People who really care about their environment, who who live here because they love yeah. their environment. It's a shout out to Skibreen activism. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Skibreen has actually got an amazing gang of activists around environment and and bikes. They're doing great things around bikes and Skib. Bandon's going well too. So I think there's a good. There's there's always this kind of friction between the towns of who's who's kind of the best and i've had great conversations with both ban and skibbering guys lately and they've they've both said we're just trying to keep up with clan and it makes me laugh because they're both they've got these amazing you know they've got community centers and they've got you know skate parks and bike paths and all these things happening in their towns and going look at your you be skib is amazing they're doing great stuff and so is Bandon. So I hope that as they continue on their, their great successes that Clonakilty can catch up and we'll get some good infrastructure and some some support, I suppose, more support from our council and councillors in yeah. Clon. So thanks so much, Ellie. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to another episode of the Clon Bike Cast. A massive thanks to Ellie O'Byrne for coming and meeting with me here in Clonakilty to give us more information on how we can work with the freedom of information and access to information on the environment to further our work. Also, as always, a huge thanks goes out to Justin Grounds, my co-host, producer of the Clonbike cast and maker of our music.